HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Thursday, November 18th, 2021. This is our 309th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a wonderful writer, editor, and former lieutenant to the late, great Anthony Bourdain, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to find healing through work. Yes, this one's a little bit deep, but fact is, we all have stuff, and we need to find ways to deal with it. And it's possible that our work can be therapeutic if we allow it to. It can serve a purpose beyond the task at hand, providing comfort on another level. So whatever we may be going through, let's remember that we can seek solace and find healing even in the most unexpected places. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest joining me. It is Lori Wolliver. She is a writer and editor and for nearly a decade, former lieutenant to the late author, TV host, and producer, Anthony Bourdain. Lori has written for the New York Times, Vogue, GQ, Food and Wine, Lucky Peach, rest in peace, and more. And she's been a private cook, nanny, caterer, writer, bus girl, and more, and editor at Art Culinaire and Wine Spectator. She's written several books, including Appetites, a Cookbook, and World Travel, and A Reverend Guide, which she co-authored with Anthony Bourdain, which end, and the, the latter entered the New York Times bestseller list at number one. And she's most recently written Bourdain, the definitive oral biography, which debuted at number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. So without further ado, hi, Lori. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for joining me. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you. And I was thinking back to when we met, and I, I feel like it was during your art culinaire days. That's very possible. Was it uh, was it in a bookstore uh, in in like a Williams Sonoma bookstore, or am I am I misremembering that? That tell well, me the, de- the exact detail of it. I I'm not sure. Your memory is probably better than mine on that. <laughs> I I just I like I just remember you working there, and just as I guess as a PR person in relationship with writer, just kind of knowing that was what mm. your beat was. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's go back a little bit um, to to a bit of your history or how you got into your career, which um, which I, I I named some of the past jobs you've had, but you certainly mm-hmm. have have had um, done a lot of things. So you want to take us back a little bit to how you got started? Sure, absolutely. So uh, my first sort of real food job, well. Really going back, I was a bus girl in a restaurant when I was a teenager, uh, which was a kind of a formative experience and certainly a lot of fun. And and sort of as much as I, I, I didn't really love it at the time, it did sort of there was something about the restaurant business that I did love. I loved the sort of excitement and the chaos and the the teamwork and, uh, you know, the end of the night kind of uh, relaxing with my coworkers. But my first um, job out of college was as a private cook for a family and um Doing that, I, it was uh, I loved it, but I wanted to actually really learn how to cook. I, I didn't have any training at that point, so I decided to go to the French Culinary Institute uh, and got my um, culinary uh, classic culinary certificate there, their uh, six month professional program. And then from there, uh, you know, I, I was already it, it. It was very clear to me that I wasn't really cut out to be a restaurant cook. That I didn't really have the temperament or I, I just I just didn't love it enough. I wasn't passionate enough to uh, make all the sort of sacrifices that one I think has to make to be uh, to be a happy, successful line cook in New York. Uh, so I applied to be Mario Batali's assistant. And this was in 1998. Uh, he wasn't yet the the huge celebrity that he would become. And I think I was the only person who applied for it. And um you know, the fact that I had just graduated culinary school, so I knew my way around food a little bit, and I wanted to be a writer, and I was willing to kind of do whatever, uh, you know, job came up. It made me, I think, an attractive candidate, but I think I was the only person who uh, who applied for the job. So I was hired, and I, and I did that for three and a half years, and that really was uh, an education in all things restaurant and food and wine, travel, uh, you know, media, business, real estate. It was just this unbelievably immersive uh, experience to to be, you know, at the right hand of somebody who was really an up and coming uh, figure in all those worlds in New York in the late 90s and early 2000s. So that's really where I think things kind of got started for me. Uh, Mario was uh was um, willing to kind of put me in touch with people who would could help me out getting started writing and editing uh, for magazines and newspapers. Um, and I helped him write two cookbooks while I worked for him. And from there, I was a, a, a freelance writer and editor. And then after about two years of that and, and you know, cobbling together catering gigs and private cooking uh, and, and really kind of just treading water when it came to keeping my bills paid, quite frankly, and not, you know, maxing out my credit card, I decided to take a job at Art Culinaire. Uh, and um, I, I didn't really feel qualified for it, but I thought, well, let me see, you know, maybe they'll 
maybe they'll hire me. And they did, to my great surprise. And so I went from being a freelance writer to suddenly being, uh, you know, executive editor of a magazine. Of course, it was an extremely small staff. It wasn't like I was, you know, producing a monthly glossy for Condé Nast. You know, it was a quarterly uh, with almost no ads and, uh, you know, very much a niche publication, but one that's very uh, beloved and respected by by chefs, certainly, and, and people in the business. And so I, I learned a, a lot working there and I got to travel and I got to meet a lot of really incredible chefs and, and you know, inspiring um, cooks. And uh, then from there, I went to Wine Spectator because I was eager to get back into New York. I lived in New York and then I was commuting out to Morristown, New Jersey every day to work at Art Culinaire. And that just, you know, that got sort of old after a while. Uh, so I was really lucky to get hired at Wine Spectator I did that for a number of years. Uh, I was, uh, so I, you know, got a whole education in wine, winemakers, terroir, uh, you know, just the, the business of wine and, and uh, you know, a closer look at the, the business of magazine publishing. But my beat was really more about food and wine pairing, uh, recipe stuff. I was always, uh, you know, on the food side of things, but, but got a really good general education in wine. Um, and then I had a child and I wanted to kind of change the way that I was working and the way I was using my time. And that's when I started working for Tony Bourdain. Uh, and, and, um, I was able to work from home and, uh, and I had having been an assistant to, uh, to Mario Batali again, he was, Tony was very willing to hire me just based on that, uh, that job experience. And we had worked together on his first cookbook, Anthony Bourdain's Layal cookbook. So he, he knew that we could work well together and that, you know, that I was someone that he could trust. And so I did that job for, uh, close to 10 years. And in that time we wrote a cookbook, as you said, appetites, and we started working on world travel, which is a book that I had to finish, uh, in the, in the wake of his unexpected death in 2018. Wow. Yes. Thank you for taking us through. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, just, it's interesting to me a little with careers. Like for me, after college, I lived in Chicago and I, I went to a cooking school in Chicago. I did a small culinary program thinking I wanted to be a chef and then realizing that maybe that wasn't my calling, but, and then I dabbled in a lot of different things along my my career path with mm-hmm. recipe testing and food styling and all these things until I eventually found PR. Um, so it's, it's interesting. Like it's, there's a little, it's kind of like a little similarity, but difference in, in definitely your, your work with um, getting plugged in with Mario. And then mm-hmm. um, it's uh, it's, uh, and then, and then, and, and then by getting to um, wine, when you talked about wine spectator, I was thinking um, one of my um, most memorable, uh, internships or really put me in foot in the door was I worked, I was an internet food arts magazine, which. Was, oh, okay. The yeah. Great so, food arts under the umbrella of M. Yeah. Schenken communications. Yeah. And also, and also really well respected, like industry publication, like mm-hmm. um, our, our culinaire. So, um, you know, it was just, um, it's interesting to see, like, I mean, hearing people's career paths and, and how we end up where we are. So, yeah. so you, so you met, how, how did you initially meet um, Tony? Was it, was it through Mario? Yeah, uh, I was getting ready to end my time as Mario's assistant. And uh, Tony had published Kitchen Confidential a few years before that, 
we of course, you know, everyone read it and, and loved it. And, and so I knew who he was. And then uh, he, Tony and Mario became friends and Tony reached out to Mario and said, listen, I have to, you know, I'm writing a cookbook now. Um, can you recommend anyone to, to help me edit and test recipes? I don't really have time to do all that myself, nor do I, you know, really know what that what that work is like. Uh, and so Mario recommended me and made that introduction. And so Tony hired me, I think based on a, either a phone call or I might've actually sent him a letter. Uh, we never met in person before he hired me to do the job. Uh, but wow. uh, you know, it was based on the strength of Mario's recommendation. And then we finally did meet in person once, uh, you know, the book got underway so that we could kind of just, uh, you know, have a, have a quick meeting and, and figure out our workflow. Uh, so that was in 2002 was the first time that I met him. Yeah. Well, I have my copy of Kitchen Confidential here. Um, of mm. course, read it like everyone else. And, but I, I, you know, and followed and knew, you know, I'd met Tony, I think a couple of times, but I didn't really know him. But mm-hmm. um, what, what was it, what was it like working for him and how did your role change over the years? And because you were, I mean, and also seeing his career I mean, take off is like an understatement, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when I, when I first met him and worked with him on that book, uh, I was uh, very surprised. You know, I think like most people, I, having read the book, I just thought he was going to be this kind of cowboy, you know, uh, you know, energy dialed up to 10, just like a wild man and very irreverent and loud. And that wasn't at all the case. I was really surprised to see he was kind of quiet and shy and a little awkward in a way that I wasn't sure, like, is it me or is it him? Uh, and, you know, we had a very professional and, and rather brief, uh, you know, meeting about the book with his co-authors uh, at Leal Restaurant. And then uh, from then on, it was mostly everything we did by email. We just, you know, passed recipes back and forth and notes and um, uh, because he was already so busy. Uh, So that was my first impression of him. And it was pretty much the same. You know, once I started as his his assistant, um, I got to know him a little bit better. But, uh, you know, over time, he, he was such a such a busy person constantly on the move that it, for the first year or two, I really didn't see him very much in person at all. And to the fact that where, and I, you know, I sort of would make fun of him about this. There was a time, it was maybe a year, a year and a half into working for him. And I was invited to uh, some kind of a party at his production company. I think it was a wrap party for the season. And so I went and um, I had to introduce myself to him. Like he didn't remember what I looked like. <laughs> And he, you know, and, and he meets so many people and, you know, it's, yeah. it, it wasn't a surprise, but, you know, he was, he was embarrassed and it was just sort of something we laughed about, but, um, it's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, he was, um, at once he was very open and very, you know, he, uh, not shy about, you know, saying what he needed. And, you know, I, I sort of, as an assistant, you kind of jump into someone's life and you know, you know, what their doctor's appointments are and, you know, what they're doing in their free time and, and uh, where they're traveling and, you know, what they need for their household, all these things. Uh, but he, you know, and, and I wrote, you know, this comes up a lot in the book Bourdain. He also was uh, a very private person in some ways. And so, uh, I felt in some ways that I knew him very well. And in some ways that there was just, a, um, you know, there were things behind a locked door that were not for me or, or maybe for anyone to know. Uh, so, you know, we had a really good working relationship. Uh, I really tried to just be professional and, and efficient and, 
you know, I like to be funny. I like to talk to people. I like to be social, but I, I felt like this guy is constantly coming into contact with a public who worships him and who is, you know, wants to impress him, wants to get his attention. And the last thing he needs is me, you know, trying to make jokes and, and, uh, you know, be like that. So I always really erred on the side of staying quiet and, and just sort of being very businesslike. Um, as time went on, I, I got a little more relaxed and I felt like I, I was able to kind of be more myself around him, but I just didn't ever want to be the burden uh, to add to the burden in any way, because I think it, what really was as, as much as I think he really enjoyed his life and, and the experiences and the opportunities that he had, I think it also, you know, it takes a lot out of you to be a public figure like that. And especially one who sort of, part of his persona was every man, right? In some ways. So I think people really relate to that. They want to talk to you more than, you know, they're not as intimidated as they might be by a, you know, a big A-list actor. Uh, and so that takes takes more out of you when you're out in the public. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be a celebrity or that famous at that level. And and he is someone who came across or as someone that, yeah, you could be buddies with and just want to mm-hmm. chat. And it had to I mean, be very hard. And I think you're what you, you know, you said or the way you, you took on working with him, obviously it was the right match and fit and what he needed um, and worked well and that you worked together on, on books, uh, many mm-hmm. books together too. So mm-hmm. um I give you a lot of credit and I've been wondering like, how have you been since his passing? I was, um, I mean, I'll just share, like, I feel like it's for someone who who knew him or, or knew of him or in the industry. Like, it's kind of like you remember where you were when you, when you heard the news and yeah. I'll just, I remember for me, I was on my way. I was walking in Manhattan down to Sullivan Street Bakery because they were one of my clients and we had a photo shoot and I was looking at my phone and I was on Instagram and all of a sudden I started seeing posts about him and I was like, why is everyone posting about Tony Bourdain? Mm. And I just, I just remember like showing up there and like, like telling Jim Leahy and it was like, it was just, yeah, Yeah. it was like, I'm just thinking about him, like just getting the chills kind of thinking about it. So how, Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to metabolize. You know, it's been two, sorry, three and a half years now. So I've certainly had some time to, to reflect on it and to, you know, to have written these books really was a gift in a lot of ways uh, to be able to continue to kind of work with him in a way, even though he's not around but to have uh, a mandate to do something with all of this wonderful work that he left behind and to talk to so many people that were uh, part of his life, get their stories, hear their thoughts about him, hear their memories. A lot of people I had never met before or wasn't even aware of who they were before Tony died. Uh, I was able to, to meet with many of them, interview them for Bourdain. So... Uh, I feel lucky in a way that I that I had that my grieving period also was a period of of productive work and that, uh, you know, I didn't have to just sort of change gears and say, okay, well, I need a new job now. You know, my boss is dead. Uh, I think that would have been uh, a much more difficult transition. So how am I? I, You know, I'm okay. I mean, it's it's a very there's a lot of 
processing that goes on in any death, right? But especially I think with a suicide where there is this different sense of how one might have done something differently. And it's a very, it's a bit of a fool's errand because there is no changing the outcome of what happened. There is no changing the trajectory and the decision that a person makes to end their life. It's a very, uh, it's a finite thing, obviously. So, but there, you can't help but go over and over those last few days or last, you know, interactions and, and talking to people and always just sort of wondering like what, what could have been done different? What could have I, what could I have done differently or what could have anyone done differently? If only this, if only that, you know, it's a lot of, of processing. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's complicated. You know, I feel very lucky. I, I, um, I have a really great therapist and I have a lot of great friends and family and Tony surrounded himself with some of the best people, you know, the most loyal, the smartest, the hardest working, the funniest. And so to have that web of people who were also deeply, deeply affected by this death and to be able to, to lean on them and talk to them and ask them questions and just sort of get together and, and hold each other up, which I think we, we, we all continue to do to an extent you know, life moves on. People uh, had to find other work and, and figure out how to move on with their lives. But, you know, I just had lunch the other day with one of Tony's producers, you know, and he said, we've we got to just stick together and, and help each other out and, you know, keep keep this thing going as far, you know, this thing being, you know, the the extraordinary, extraordinary people that, that Tony surrounded himself with. Not to flatter myself, but, you know, the the people that work for him on television and the people that were his publishing partners, I mean, just you know, truly making outstanding work. And, and Tony obviously was the center of that, but you, you can't make a TV show in isolation. You can't publish, you know, a, a book in print in isolation. And, uh, and he was really good at, at figuring out uh, how to, how to motivate people, how to get great work out of people. So it's, I feel very lucky to have those people in my life still. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I think it's really wonderful that you have this book that that's out now uh, on Bourdain, which I have here as well. And it's, um, I've been reading through it, um, like, not, not in order, I guess, I kind of been mm -hmm. jumping around. And I think you can, <laughs> the way yeah. it's designed um, by the by the different chapters are just, it's amazing how you have so many um, different people that knew him quoted in the book. How did you go about putting it together? Did you, did you reach out to people and just um, like let them, I guess, just uh, share information or did you give them specific topics to, to talk about? Uh, each person that I interviewed, I, I tried to really educate myself as much as possible about their relationship with Tony or, you know, anything I could find out about people before I, I went into the interview I used, uh, and, and I, you know, every interview I had written questions and a lot of times, you know, we would, we would deviate from those and just, you know, the, the conversation would become kind of a more organic process, but I always went in prepared to do a straight interview because you never know. Some people are very good at just, talking off the cuff and, and volunteering information. And some people need a little, you know, a little or a lot more prompting. And so I tried to be as prepared as possible, you know, talking to people who, who knew those people, uh, you know, reading, going back and reading Kitchen Confidential and Medium Raw and uh, even Tony's 
uh, fiction, his crime novels, and and you know just scouring all of the the available uh, material for for anything that I could. Um, and and people were just really you know I, I think Tony made such an impression on the world and also on specific people. So it was really astounding to me the the amount of very specific visceral detail that people were able to pull up. In some cases from you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago uh, from high school experiences, from, from you know, Tony's brief stint at, as a college student, from the CIA, from his time in the kitchens of New York City in the 80s and 90s. Uh, people had lots and lots of very specific detailed memories of, of funny things he said or did or, uh, you know, just great experiences with him, things they learned from him as a cook and as a chef. Uh, so it was really, you know, for me, one of the big challenges was how to how to choose what to leave in. And, and you know, you, I, I couldn't include everything, obviously. And I had uh, I interviewed there are 91 people in the book. I interviewed probably closer to 100. There were a few that that for whatever reason just didn't weren't a natural fit for the book. Uh, but so that's probably you know, close to 200 hours of recorded conversation. And so I really had to focus in uh, the, the most logical sort of scheme to set up the book was chronological, which it is. But like you said, it, you don't have to read it in order. You know, each chapter kind of is a, it's its own discrete uh, segment of his life that you can you can skip around. And they're short chapters, which I think really helps a person kind of move along uh, in, in any reading scenario. Yeah, yeah. For someone like me, it was <laughs> I, I. I have a lot of books in my. I have a hard time sitting down and getting through a whole book because I jump around so much. So mm-hmm. yes, the short chapters work for me as well. And I also love. I, I didn't expect it until I opened it, but I love the photos that are in the book. They're very mm-hmm. special of mm-hmm. of Tony and his family, and just um, a lot of really cool memories. Yeah. You know, his mother, Gladys, who was interviewed in the book, uh, she she did die herself in January of 2020. I was able to interview her in the fall of 2018. And she was an extraordinary archivist for the family photos and papers and everything. Uh, she was a copy editor at The New York Times for 25 years. She's an extremely she was an extremely meticulous person, very exacting. And she kept uh, a wonderful uh, selection of of photos in the, you know, probably 30 family photo albums and each one labeled with the date, with the first and last name of every person in the photo, the location, you know, what was the occasion? Just, just, she made my work so easy. So Tony's brother, Christopher, now has all of those photos and he was really uh, very generous in letting me come and look through everything and uh, and make some selections for the book. And again, it was the case of, God, I you know, if I had the the room in this book, I could I could put in you know several hundred photos, but I did have to narrow it down quite a bit. So I tried to really get uh, a lot of photos that people hadn't seen before. There are there are some that are that are you know have been in circulation for a while, but there are a lot in the in the book that I don't think have been seen outside of Tony's family. So, uh, you know, a lot of really cute baby pictures and t- pictures from his youth. There's a there's a group photo from uh, his summer camp where he is um you can tell exactly which one he is because he's sort of slyly giving the middle finger. 
uh, you know, and he's got his it's camp uniform on him and he looks all, you know, he looks very innocent. And then you look at his face and you look at his lap and both of his hands, he's got this middle finger sticking up. I'm like, oh my God, this kid at 11 years old, this kid was already, you know, he was who he was. Uh, so funny. I'm, I'm looking in the book and I just found the picture. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. People, everyone get this book. It's a great, I mean, for the pictures and for the content, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. terrific. Um, and you also finished the book that you had, I believe started working on with Tony, the world travel and a reverent guide. Um, That's right. which I need to get my hands on a copy of that. I don't have it, but I, I it's, um, I, um, tell me a little bit about what that was like finishing, finishing it in the process. Sure. So that one, we started talking about it and planning it in 2017. And it was a bit of a slow process because Tony, of course, was so busy and traveling all the time. And it just took a while for everything to kind of get settled with the contract. And then once we got that started, that was probably spring of 2018 when we really got down to work. And so we had this one meeting where I went in with a list of every place he had ever gone for television. And in some cases, you know, other reasons. And we just went through it and it was, you know, it was not everywhere in the world, but many, many places in the world, you know, every continent and uh, many countries within those continents. And of course, lots and lots of domestic locations. And we just went through all of them and decided, you know, what can we make a chapter out of? What's, what's, you know, what, where are there enough places to recommend that it would make an interesting travel book chapter? And he had lots of ideas. He had lots of very clear memories and very strong opinions about places and what what you know he would like to include and what he doesn't want to include. And I recorded that conversation, and that ended up being the only meeting we ever had about the book. You know, I, I took the notes from that conversation and got to work on you know constructing the the framework of the book and started diving into old episodes and reading all the old transcripts. And then it was, you know, uh, maybe two months later when he when he was gone. So we really we hadn't got too deep into the process. And then suddenly it was it was just mine to finish uh, and and to decide whether or not to finish it. And there was definitely a period where I thought, I don't know if I can do this. You know, this is so painful and it's so not what I expected. You know, I had written. Uh, appetites with him a few years before that. It was such a joyful experience. It was so much fun and so hilarious. And, you know, he had a million creative ideas. He had such a hand in every part of making the book. The photos are weird and funny. And, you know, it was just a, a like a really incredible experience. So that was what I was expecting from world travel. And then to suddenly be, you know, hit with this tremendous grief and shock and then have to make something that was uplifting and joyful and useful and funny. It felt like a, like an insurmountable task. Uh, and then after a few months, I, I thought, well, you know what, what else am I going to do? You know, let me, let me give this a try and see if I can make a go of it on my own. And so as much as I'm very proud of the book and I think it is, um, I think it's useful and funny and whether or not you'll, you'll ever travel, I think it's a really, um, it's a, it's a great way to learn a lot about the world. Uh, the process of making it, especially in those early few months, was very, very lonely uh, because it was not what I had expected. And, you know, it was a lot of writing, a lot of research. It's it's a solitary pursuit to be a writer. 
Uh, and especially with this kind of book yeah. where I, ju- I just had to dive into the material, you know, whereas with Bourdain, I felt I was a lot of times I was in company because I was constantly talking to people. But I'm very proud of World Travel. It did extraordinarily well. You know, it came out. It was the first sort of thing that came out this year uh, that that was something, quote unquote, new from Tony Bourdain. And so I think there was this tremendous amount of pent up uh, desire for something. And also it was at a time when vaccines were just starting to roll out and we were starting to actually feel that maybe we could travel again. So we were very lucky with the timing. And I think it's, it, it is full of Tony's writing this book. So I think it yeah. does give people sort of a new, a new bit of Tony, even if it's things that he said on television or things that he had written elsewhere, it's, it's put together in a way that it feels very fresh. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, you did it. And congratulations. That's, that's amazing. Um, Let me ask you my question from my last guest on episode 308. I had on Chris Cardone. He's a bartender with over 21 years of experience who currently is bartending at Isodi in New York city. And Mm -hmm. he's the 2017 national champion of Diageo world class. Mm -hmm. So he wants to know what's your interpretation of what Anthony's intention really was with all of his shows and the information that he gave us all. What do you think he was trying to accomplish? And he noticed that he seemed very authentic on his shows. And yes, Mm. I agree with that. Huh. What do I think he was trying to accomplish? Well, uh, you know, speaking very frankly, and this gets addressed in the book Bourdain, I think he had this, at, at least at first, I think he had this sense of the brass ring only comes around once. Uh, you know, he had published Kitchen Confidential. He suddenly was hugely in demand, people offering TV shows and publishing contracts and, uh, you know, promoting products. And uh, suddenly he was, a, he was a hot commodity in the world. And I think he thought, well, this is, you know, I've, I've told in obscurity for close to 30 years as a cook and I'm a frustrated writer and I'm just going to, I'm going to take this opportunity. And he was actually quite ambivalent about, about being a television personality. I think it really, and again, this, this is discussed at length in, in the book Bourdain, where he was, he felt sort of embarrassed by being on television and he felt sort of like a fraud, but it was like, well, I can't, I'll never forgive myself if I don't take this opportunity and ride it to the end and see, you know, what I can, what I can make of this life. So I think that was his initial intent, honestly, was to take advantage of this extraordinary opportunity. And I think as time went on and I think as he, he realized how much fun it could be to, to make television, to, to sort of be a more a filmmaker than a television uh, producer and host, I think he started to understand that he had creative ideas and visions that he could execute through this medium of television and that he could tell stories and that he could, uh, in a non-didactic way, that he could maybe uh, help people to understand more of the world, just as, you know, he had his own sort of education and awakening. You know, he's somebody who really hadn't traveled very much at all when he started making television. He had been to France a few times with his family. He spent some time in the Caribbean. And then he had a solo uh, one trip to Tokyo when he was the chef at at Leal. And that was the one that sort of, you know, broke open his brain and was like, oh, my God, there's so much of the world I haven't seen yet. You know, Uh, so I think, uh, uh, you know, as he matured as a television presence, I think the intention became, let me help other people to see all the, the good and the bad and the difference and the sameness and the beauty and the ugliness of the world, just the way that, you know, that I've been able to see it through this, this extraordinary stroke of good luck. Yes. I mean, so well said. 
And um, yeah, we're going to take a break. I just also wanted to mention that you also, during this time, produced Roadrunner or were a producer on Roadrunner, a film about Mm -hmm. Anthony Bourdain or documentary, which I did go see and really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, you know, it's emotional, I think, watching it. But I I think um, it's awesome that you were involved with that as well. Um, Yeah, I I felt really lucky to be involved. You know, the filmmakers are obviously hugely talented people. Morgan Neville is an Oscar winner for uh, his film, 20 Feet from Stardom. So he was a really excellent choice to do this one. And I think they really did him justice. Uh, you know, it's it's such a beautiful film. It just broke my heart wide open when I saw it for the first time. I was really glad to be uh, watching a cut of it at home and not uh, in a in a theater, you know, snuffling all over everyone. Uh, and it's very, very emotional. You know, I, I saw it uh, at Tribeca, and then I saw it a few times in theaters, just because I wanted to sort of experience it in the, you know, in the wild. And uh, it really had a deep, deep emotional impact on people. It was very, um, it was beautiful and exciting, and also really kind of sad and painful to see to see Tony kind of reanimated, and in some cases to see this footage that no one had seen before. You know, the the, the footage that was shot in France in the last few days of his life, and uh, it's it's very, very moving film, and I. I I encourage people to see it and, and, you know, put tissues in their pockets. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. And it's, I was, I mean, it got me back to movie theaters. I first movie I went, I think it's actually the only movie I've been back to now Mm. since. (laughs) Um, Cause I go when there's something I really want to see and I didn't Mm -hmm. really want to see it and recommend it for people. So, okay, awesome. Let's take a little break. We'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Lori Wooliver. She is a writer-editor and the former lieutenant to the late author, TV host, and producer, Anthony Bourdain. So, Lori, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. Yes. Okay, here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Mm, Eat in at home. Sorry. <laughs> there's no there's no right or wrong. There's no right or wrong. Um, indoor dining or alfresco dining? Indoor dining. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Mocktail. 
Nice. How about tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Large plates. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Communal table or chef's counter? Oh, I hate them both. Uh, chef's counter. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you can sit at a table by your, without yeah. <laughs> your own individual tables. Fine. Yeah. Um, okay. I have a few more. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Oh, God. <laughs> Tipping. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever, whatever is better for the people. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay, writing, reading, or podcasting. Mm, writing. Cool. Travel by plane, train, or automobile. Mm, train. My last two are cheese plate or dessert. Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn, or for you, I'm saying, or Queens. Mm, Queens. <laughs> <laughs> I always just say Manhattan or Brooklyn. I'm like, I have to give Lori Queens a choice in this. Yes, yes. Always Queens. <laughs> Here's to Queens. That's awesome. And that was the game. All right. What do I win? Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have to come up with better prizes than the fact that you're going to win to continue on with me and talk some industry news. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I know. Super exciting. Um, so the article I picked out was um, in Fast Company and it's entitled Gourmet Marketplace Gold Belly is launching a TV channel becoming the QVC of artisanal food. And this was by Yasmin Gain. And basically talking about how Gold Belly, which really was a business that thrived during the pandemic, um, a very important partner for restaurants, allowing them to ship meals and meal kits around the country when dining rooms were closed. Um, this is an idea that the CEO had for a while, um, Joe Ariel, about launching launching something on TV. And so Gold Belly TV is it's a video platform for food e-commerce and it ties directly with like their talent and the products that they offer. Um, and I checked it out the other day. It's like eat what you watch. And I, I think it's really cool. Um, the, I think it's smart. What it, what's your take? Do you know anything about this? No, this is this is news to me, but I think uh, you know, any anything that helps uh restaurants and artisanal food producers to get the word out there, to keep themselves open, to keep themselves sustained, you know, in this time that's been so devastating for, for the business, I think is in theory, a great thing, you know, and, and, you know, I have some trepidation about shipping food around the country uh, when maybe there's maybe there are good options in your backyard that don't involve the same carbon footprint and packaging. And, you know, there are certainly there are issues of, of waste and of, of, you know, mileage and trucks and airplanes and all that. But you know, to be very realistic, this is not this is a model that's not going away. Right. Amazon is not going away. Uh, the 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 e-commerce is here to stay. So if it's something like Gold Belly, where it's, you know, super high quality, really great stuff that makes people happy. And again, that that is that helps restaurants and producers stay viable, then 
then I'm all for it. You know, I, will I be ordering food off television? Probably not, but I, I don't know that I'm really the, I don't think I'm the target target demographic. Um, and I will be doing food gifts this year. You know, I have someone to buy for who's very difficult. And he said, well, you know, food is always a safe bet. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not the worst idea in the world. And, um, you know, if we can't, if we continue to not be able to travel the way that we would want to, or travel is just not an option for a person, but they're dying for that Katz's pastrami sandwich or, uh, you know, tartine bread or, you know, whatever it is that's being offered on Gold Belly. It's, it's a nice way to feel that even if you can't travel, you're getting a little piece of, of something uh, from, from the place that you would like to be. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm on the fence, but ultimately, yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's keep innovating and, and let people figure out ways to, to keep their businesses going. Yeah, I, I agree completely with what you said. And it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I dine out and go out all the time and I haven't, I personally, I haven't used Gold Belly because I, I mean, I think I, it's, I was thinking, am I the target audience? I mean, I am, I guess, but for mm-hmm. some reason I'm, I'm more the person physically who wants to go to the places, but this is giving access to this stuff for people, you know, in other mm-hmm. cities and all around. And they have different, um, they have a really nice lineup already with, uh, with cooking demos with the products. They have like Daniel Ballou's on the site, um, the Hannah Marianne Chang of Mimi Chang's and, and Ivan Ramen. And, I think it's, I, I will have to see where this goes, but I agree. I don't think it's going away. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, giving people access to food products that they want, that they might not be able to access. Like you said, a Katz's uh, mm-hmm. sandwich is, is, I think, a good thing. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Um, congratulations to them. Uh, it is, you know, during such a hard year or two, it's, um, it is pretty amazing or interesting that some businesses did do very well and they were, they were certainly one of them. So, mm-hmm. okay. So, uh, it's time for my solo dining experience. So this week it's at Poppy and Harriet's Pioneer Palace. So here's the rundown. 53688 Pioneer Road in Pioneer Town, California, near Joshua Tree. The concept, it's a quiz, quintessential high desert roadhouse serving classic American fare amid a rustic Western decor plus barbecue and live music. The current owners since 2003 are Robin Celia and Linda Krantz. Just looking on their website back at the history, it was owned by Pappy and Harriet and Pappy died in 1994 and Harriet then sold it to a family member who had a couple years. And then these two new owners took over again in 2003. So why'd I go? Well, I was in Joshua Tree for the first time a couple months ago, and this is a legendary music venue, restaurant, and bar, so I figured I had to go. Uh, my experience. So it didn't look like they took reservations. I saw they closed at 9.30, so I made sure to get there. Uh, before that, I got there around 8.30. Um, the place was happening. I, there aren't that many dining options, I think, in the Joshua Tree area, but definitely had a great buzz and it was cool to see. It was a good vibe. I toured the space a little bit afterward um, and I was glad to be there. What did I get? So I got a half rack of baby back ribs. It was smothered in homemade barbecue sauce and, a, and it was 100% pure Berkshire meat and it had two sides. It had mac and cheese and broccoli. And my take was, it was great. It was really tasty. I mean, the half rack was huge. I mean, it's not like 
people, I started conversations with people around me when this, my plate arrived because it was just ginormous and it was only a half rack. It was a full rack. So definitely, mm-hmm. definitely um, get your dollars worth there. Um, so the ambiance. So it's an iconic roadhouse. It's lots of woods and a big bar and open spaces for performances. Um, it's in the middle of the desert. And actually, before I left town the next day, I decided to like drive through the area to kind of see it more because at night you really can't see anything. It's just pitch black. Um, but it was cool. I see it. It is like a movie set. Um, I'd say it's a perfect place to go dinner with friends. Um, interesting tidbit, Pappy and Harriet's opened in 1982. And there's a long history with Pioneer Town with a group of Hollywood investors who had came into the space and wanted to create it into this living movie set. So there's been many films um, shot there. And also fun fact about it is uh, as a music venue, there's Paul McCartney, Lizzo, like lots of very famous performers have performed there. So um, again, I was, it was good to, good to see the spot. And another interesting tidbit is I saw that Anthony Bourdain filmed an episode of Travel Channel's No Reservations in 2011 in the Mojave Desert. And his first stop was Happy and Harriet's. So, my um, wrap it up. Uh, my personal fun fact uh, is that I stayed for the first time in an Airbnb, and in my first Airstream, it was actually called a magical Airstream, and I absolutely loved it. It was really great for as a solo traveler and just to be in the middle of the desert. And I got to spend some time in Joshua Tree National Park hiking around, and it was a really great trip. So the cost of this meal was $24, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. Their website is poppyandharriets.com and same Instagram handle, poppyandharriets. There you go. Have you heard of this place, Lori? <laughs> I have. I have. I remember when Tony shot uh, and the episode, the desert episode in uh, 2011, there was a great scene with him and uh, Josh Homme of Queens of the Stone Age, um, who's also in the book, Bourdain. Uh, interestingly, I, I am I have become Instagram friends with a woman named Lisa Elin, and she and her, I believe, boyfriend uh, actually are the as of uh, September of 2021. They are the new owners of Harry, oh. Harry and Pappy and Harriet's. Um, they, uh, they, it's, they, I don't know. It's, it's a very recent thing, but, um, well, good to know. I, they, yes, their website. Cause that they is, do that yes. is where I got my info. Yeah. I just pulled up a, an article from the, uh, Coachella Valley independent newspaper. Cause I was like, I think Lisa owns that now. So yeah, very, that's very late breaking news, but it is under new ownership. And according to this reviewer of the Coachella Valley independent, uh, nothing has changed in terms of the ambiance, the food, the, the service, the music. They have been very painstaking about making sure that they don't mess up the, the vibe of a place that people really, really love and has a, a long history. So uh, I can co- I've never been there, but I can uh, I can co-sign. <laughs> Amazing. No. And thank you for for the, the correction on that. I, I, I mean, wow, how that's awesome that you knew that. And I want to go back and watch watch Tony's episode because, um, yeah, I was I, I was it, I, the, the, I knew of the place. It came up um, when I was looking for restaurants and then the, the guys that ran the Airstream I was at were, you know, recommended going there. And it's mm-hmm. it's really in the it's like especially when you're, if you go, if you're driving at night, like you sort of just driving, like you don't know where you're going. And then all of a sudden the lights, you see the lights of the building and you're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. So 
Wow. Wow. Yeah. I I definitely want to check it out. Yeah. Well, awesome. Okay. So it's time for the final question. Uh, My next guest is Virgilio Martinez. He's the chef and owner of Central in Lima, Peru. It's currently number four on the world's 50 best list. And he's the author of a new book, The Latin American Cookbook by Fiden. And I was very fortunate to dine at Central uh, I look back in 2016, I took a trip out to Peru. So, um, and I've met him and so I'm excited to chat with him. Uh, so Lori, what would you like to ask for Helio? Oh gosh. Uh, I guess, you know, what is the, uh, what is the impact and the pressure of being so high up on the 50 world's 50 best list? Uh, do you think that you're, your guests come in expecting something different or something uh, uh, extraordinary because of the list. Uh, how much of your of your uh, guest population is informed by the list versus people that are just coming because they they know that your your food is good? That's a really great question. <laughs> um, I, I, I look forward to hearing how he answers it because yeah, there's got to be pressure being being mm-hmm. so highly ranked. Mm-hmm. Um, expectations, right? All about expectations. Um, So that's great. Um, Before we wrap up, I just, one thing I didn't get a chance to ask you was what's next? Like what's your, what are you working on now? Anything you want to share? Yeah. Well, I have been working for a few months on a book about bread and that's actually the working title uh, with the uh, baker Richard Hart who is a British uh, former chef, now baker. He spent six or seven years as the head baker at Tartine in San Francisco. And a few years ago, he moved to Copenhagen and opened Hart Bakery uh, there in that city under the auspices of the Noma Group. And he is just an extraordinary baker. He makes beautiful bread. He's a funny He's like the happiest, most well-adjusted person I've ever met, certainly in the in the food business. Uh, he's just this sort of rare gem that's just, uh, you know, happy and well-adjusted. It's it's really it's kind of amazing. And he makes really great bread and he's a great teacher. I was somebody who really didn't I had never made sourdough before I started working with him on this book. And he's been able to teach me in a very straightforward way how to make great bread. Uh, So we are writing that book together. It'll be a cookbook with about 60 recipes. And that's going to be published by Clarkson Potter, probably, I don't know, give us a year or two. Uh, So that's what I'm working on now. And I am, you know, always sort of looking for my next book project. Uh, I'm starting to do my own kind of personal writing about my experiences in and around the food world, uh, you know, pitching other cookbook ideas. And I've been talking to a few people about uh, various TV projects that are, you know, very much in their infancy, but I'm excited to kind of move into that realm. Oh, fabulous. That's, that's wonderful. I've, I met Richard briefly. Um, I went, I went to the MAD conference in Copenhagen a couple of years ago. Mm. I'm a little bit familiar with him and, and his bread, and I know it is outstanding. So mm-hmm. that's going to be a, a terrific book. Yeah, thank you. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I know it will be. And um, yeah, um, and an and exciting, like different, kind of a little different beat, like still yeah. under the same umbrella, but a little different. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So. Definitely. I'm also doing uh, public speaking as much as possible. I'm really trying to move into that realm. And it's a little bit terrifying, but it's really, really fun. There's, no, there's nothing like it to, to get off after having done a speech, to get off the stage and feel like there's just an incredible 
high. So uh, as much as I find it a little bit scary, I've been doing it more and more. And I've got some some dates booked in, um, for 2022. And uh, if anyone wants me to come speak to their cooking school or college class or their corporate uh, retreat or whatever, I am definitely available to, to speak to uh, your group. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. No, you're a wonderful speaker. I mean, I think oh, that's a great you. direction. I think that's great for you to be doing. You're a natural. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Trying. <laughs> um, yeah, you are. So, and uh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I'm, I mean, I'm so impressed with everything you've done. And I, I, you know, it's been, it's been a hard, it's been hard, as we said, yeah. but I'm yeah. glad you're doing well and you have all these amazing books out, new projects. Um, I wish you, I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Lori. My guest today has been Lori Willover. She is a writer and editor and former lieutenant to the late author and TV host and producer, Anthony Bourdain. Check out her book. She's got Appetites, World Travel, and a Reverend Guide, with both with Anthony Bourdain and also Bourdain, the definitive, the definitive oral biography. And you can find out more on her website, lauriewillover.com, and follow her at lauriewillover. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Kevin. Thanks again to Lori. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. Thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.